Hello, and a very warm welcome to this event on how Richard Haldane shaped modern Britain, which is a conversation with biographer John Campbell and historian Anthony Selden. And the premise we're going to be talking about is that Richard Viscount Haldane, portrayed at length in this book, I hope you can see, hold it up a bit higher, uh, which John Campbell has written, um, that he was someone who has um, left an extraordinary legacy across modern Britain, across its government, its education, and many other things. And yet, in many ways, modern Britain has forgotten the many accomplishments of, of someone who's been called one of the uh, preeminent philosopher statesmen. It's something at the Institute, we, we, uh, Holden's name comes up more often than it might in many other offices and, and uh, places of work around the, around the country. But it's something we've been talking about very actively. And so I'm delighted to be having this discussion. I'm delighted to welcome John Campbell, who I should say for these purposes and with friends, goes by the name of Campbell. And he co-founded Campbell Lutyens in uh, 1988 and has uh, more than 50 years of corporate finance experience, private equity experience and uh, experience in private infrastructure. Anthony Seldon will be very well known to many of you as a leading contemporary historian, educationalist, commentator, political author. Just a few housekeeping things before we kick off, which many of you will also be very familiar with. Please do start to send in questions right from the start. And it's great if you add your name and where you're uh, writing from. Um, it really it really helps us um, put your questions into context. We're going to be live tweeting from IFG events using the hashtag IFG Holdane Principle. Please do follow and tweet along. And we're going to have a video and sound recording of this on our website within 24 hours. So with that, a very warm welcome to Campbell and Anthony. And I'm going by Bronwyn in this, uh, for the purposes of this discussion as well. Um, we're going to start with just a, just a brief summary. Now, Campbell, if I could start with you, um, not at the, at the vast and fascinating length of your book, um, but in a snapshot, if you ran into someone who didn't know anything about Richard Haldane, and there must be many such people you run into, what are the things that you think that person really should know? Well, first of all, thank you very much indeed for having me um, on this. I think that so much of what you stand for at the Institute for Government is spiritually holding. Um, I think if you want it in, uh, encapsulated, I would take them straight around to 28 Queen Anne's Gate. That's the only memorial to Haldane in the whole of the United Kingdom. And there's a simple blue plaque on number 28, and it says statesman, lawyer, philosopher. And that pretty well sums it up, uh, with one extraordinary exception, and that is there's not a word about education education and perhaps the area of his activity that he absolutely hoped would be his memorial for all time was his work on the educational system of the UK and particularly at the tertiary level. So I think statesman, lawyer, philosopher and educationalist. Marvellously succinct. So let me just tease out a few more details. When you talk about the, the universities, which ones should we credit him with having played a, a founding role in? Well, where do you start? Um, that he his initial work was on the calendar. First, let me quickly sketch it. Born 1856, um, born in Edinburgh, comes to London at the age of 21, having studied at the University of, Ed of Edinburgh and Göttingen to become a lawyer. Um, he immediately becomes involved with education in London and showing interest in what the work of the of a university college. He's on the council of university college within 10 years. He gets to know the webs, works closely with the webs, to found the London School of Economics, the Webbs considered him a joint. That's Sydney, Sydney and Beatrice Webb. Sydney and Beatrice Webb. Um, so that was his first tangible um, university that he helped to bring into existence. In 1898, he um, supports Balfour from across the floor. They, uh, of course, Haldane was liberal, Balfour conservative, um, to bring in the University of London Act that turned London into a teaching university rather than just an examining body. Um, that he uh, founds Imperial College um, based on the, on the principle of the University of Charlottenburg in Berlin, which he adored. So he starts work with that in 1901, brings it to fruition in 1907. 
He then works um, with the, uh, the the reform of the whole of the London University system, the Royal Commission met for 72 days, if I remember correctly, of evidence and 70 odd days of deliberation between 1911 and 1913. Chairs the Royal Commission of the University of Wales of 1916 to 18 that brought into being the modern University of Wales with the three Cardiff, Bangor and Aberystwyth. He by then, of course, I missed out Ireland. He went over to Ireland in 1898 at the request of the Irish um, party in Parliament in order to see what should be done with their university system as a condition of their giving support to the change for London University. And he put in place the principle of having University College Dublin and Queen's University Belfast, which the Liberals then delivered in 1908 in his government on the plans he'd set up. So it just went on. Of course, all the red brick universities, 1902, he brings in the change of the Privy Council that leads to the creation of Liverpool, Manchester, Sheffield, Bristol. He becomes Chancellor of St Andrews, uh, President of Birkbeck. You have one of your colleagues, President of Birkbeck. Um, he is Chancellor. Uh, of Bristol, it goes on and on and on. Then the Workers' Education Authority and the Adult Education Authority. Where, where does it stop? Yes, it's, well, for the moment it stops there, but thank you for that, that, um, that panorama of, of, of what he did, um, which is, as you said, a pretty stunning transformation of uh, particularly tertiary education um, in the UK. And Anthony, um, you're, you're a stranger to creating things in education. What do, what do you think we should think about what he did? Well, I think, Bronwyn, that, uh, and I'm really pleased to be um, here uh, with Campbell today because uh, he is such an extraordinary person. He's so diverse in so many uh, fields, military, including uh, government and the shape of uh, government and across the Conservative and Liberal and Labour parties and uh, in schools, the Balfour Education Act. Uh, and everything in universities. Why on earth? Um, I think, Bronwyn, that's where I'd begin. And I had a discussion, a disagreement with Campbell on the title, and I'm going to hold up uh, the book uh, also uh, there. Uh, and it does say uh, this word there, the forgotten statesman. I said, no, drop uh, the forgotten statesman so that the subtitle becomes the statesman who shaped modern Britain. I, I said, you'll put people off. No one wants to read about somebody who's forgotten. They want to read about somebody who has had this astonishing uh, impact. So I would like to know, Campbell, why, uh, not why did you uh, ignore my advice about inserting the word forgotten, but why has he been forgotten if at the same time you're telling us that he's also had this extraordinary impact? Campbell. Well, I I stand by my opposition to, uh, to, 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 to your advice. I took your advice on many, many other things, but I think um, it's because I had endless conversations with people who are senior in government, senior in the law, senior in education, and I would not mention his name at the beginning of the conversation, but give them hints that would lead towards him. And invariably, people couldn't get the name. Um, I think you're in a very special position, and Bronwyn obviously with the Institute for Government, he is familiar with you, but you're, um, a, a, you're a special class that have really got some knowledge about him. For a man who so underpins so many of the foundation stones of so much that we take for granted in Britain today, he just is not known. So I thought it would draw a little bit of attention to that. Um, the, I, the, the bigger question is to why, given all that he did, is he so forgotten? I think it comes back, um, in my own view, to um, after the, the war. Uh, here he is as the Secretary of State for War, his first um, government um, min, um, ministry. Um, he, he takes that in December 1905. <laughs> He holds that position until 1912. He's by then he's been um, moved up to the House of Lords to lead the Lords in the <coughs> House of Lords and to, uh, to help bring through the the, the Parliament Bill. Um, that, that that in the army. 
he had to take on the opposition of the conservative grandees to bring about, a, to make the army fit for purpose, which it palpably was not after the Boer War. He completely sets out a new scheme. The British Expeditionary Force creates the Territorial Army, creates um, the, uh, the OTCs, um, creates the Imperial General Staff, and, and by the way, also sets the foundation stones of the Royal Air Force and puts MI5 and MI6 into business at the same time. So he does all of those things. You thought after the war he'd be remembered for that. But in um, in, in the beginning of the war, um, when the, it wasn't over very, very quickly, a lot of conservative stirring took place in the most vitriolic way, saying that was Haldane a German sympathiser? And that led to the formation of the coalition in, um, in May 1915 to ask with infamously dropping Haldane from his government. By then, Haldane was the Lord Chancellor. The cleverest man in government is dropped at the moment of maximum national need uh, to feed the prejudice of the conservative press. Now, I think that when the war was over, millions of people by then are dead. There were bigger issues to address than rescuing the reputation of Haldane. So people just got on, they looked forward, they didn't look back, and they did very little to bring him back into the centre. Obviously, he came back as Lord Chancellor the first Labour government, as you said, Anthony, but um, that there were other bigger issues. Mm. And one of the, you, you pick out five principles that should be you know, attached to Haldane, if you, if you like. Um, and one of them is that there is no, in, um, that education is the best investment that any country could possibly make. Yeah. Um, Anthony, sorry, did you want to come back on that? Well, let me just ask then very quickly. There, there's another um, theory about why he's been forgotten, um, uh, which I'll just put in there, and it's a challenging question, Campbell, which is that um, biographers we know shed great light on the operation of the individual, but it is almost inevitable that they exaggerate and distort the impact of the subject about which they're writing. And how how would you respond to the proposition that he has been forgotten because uh, structural and other factors were responsible moving towards the creation of all these universities, towards the army reforms, uh, towards the creation of MI5 and, and MI6, uh, and that he was, um, he, his own importance as the agent uh, can be exaggerated? Yeah. No. Um, I really disagree with that. Clearly, everything he did was done with amazing teams of people. It, it, nothing could be done. And he was the absolute um, central leader of teams in every single respect. I think the reason why he's largely forgotten is because he was such a team player. He never went around saying, it's the big me, it's the big I. He just quietly got on. They used to say he used the back stairs to get things done rather than going through the front door. He was there to enable, to make things happen. And that that's what the measure of the achievement. It wasn't about trying to draw personal attention to him. He wasn't concerned about reputation in that sense. The only reputational thing that concerned him was the effect on his family if he didn't, if, if, if the reputation as a, was a traitor wasn't overcome. And that was overcome when they, he wrote the book before the war, which was published in 1920. And that brought about a complete reappraisal of what he'd done and his visits to the Kaiser, which of course had to be kept secret and he went people knew he'd gone to see the Kaiser in 1912 but the government wouldn't formally acknowledge it. And you describe how the press was very much against him um, at many points and really turned um, in a more appreciative direction only on his death. Yes. Um, it was, and of course, the, the, the conservative, it was the conservative press rather than the liberal press led by Northcliffe was was mad. Um, it was eventually did go mad in the Times. He was vitriolically opposed to Haldane, and um, the I'm afraid that you know the, the Conservatives were more the, the party of government than the the, the Liberals. I give you a very good example. Um, at the start of the um, of the, the, the territorial army, there were great debates going on as to whether there should be conscription or whether it should be on a voluntary basis. Lord Roberts, obviously, very much involved as a great. Cons 
subscriptionist. Um, the conservative um, grandees, the Lords Lieutenant, um, were very, very keen to maintain broadly the structure of the army they had at the moment. They could have their local regiments, their local yeomanry, different uniforms, different colours, different epaulettes and things like that. And Haldane wanted to make this efficient. Uh, what was the purpose of the army? To win wars. He defined the principle at the outset. Um, and so that, of course, ran into opposition from the Lords Lieutenant. So Haldane asks the King if he could get all the Lords Lieutenant to come to Buckingham Palace. The King addresses them, says, I want to see these, um, these um, reforms implemented, and you know what your duty is if you don't feel you can support me. I resign. Not a single one resigned, and he got through the Territorial Army. I wonder if we could um, turn to the Machinery of Government uh, Committee and its report that he brought out. This is in 1918. It's, it's about the recovery from the war. Um, and he, he was leading this, this report, which bears reading today. Um, in fact, we, more often than you might think, cited at the, universe, uh, at the Institute for Government and, and, and um, raised the question of why things haven't uh, changed uh, in the kind of way that he was, um, why the problems he was uh, identifying haven't all been fixed. But Anthony, I wonder if you could just take us into a bit the, the, the significance of that machinery of government support. Well, uh, of course. Uh, so this was a, a time in, in British government where the state before um, the 1900, before the arrival of the uh, Campbell-Bannerman Liberal government in uh, 1905, end of 1905, was very small. Um, the, the, the great move in the 20th century of government into social policy and economic policy uh, had yet to happen. The expansion of the military uh, industrial state had yet to happen. And during the First World War, uh, a moment of real tension came uh, with the setting up of the cabinet office and a need to provide a much more rational uh, organization, a much more bureaucratic, Germanic indeed. And I wonder, Campbell, uh, building on what uh, Bronwyn is saying there, how much this Germanic influence behind him. I mean, he was a philosopher politician, as was his great friend Balfour, but he was a much more practical. I mean, Balfour was writing in praise of philosophical doubt, but that Germanic organizational sense um, behind him that we see also in at universities seems to have been very strong about the organization and the need for precision in the organization of uh, the military and of government. Uh, anything in that? And as always, thank you. Put your finger on it. That um, again, just to back up, um, Haldane goes, as I've said, to university in Edinburgh. But at the end of his second year, um, he Got takes a, a term out and he goes to Göttingen. And at Göttingen, he falls under the influence of Professor Lertz. And this is when his interest in philosophy really takes off. And from that moment onwards, Haldane's driving passion was philosophy. And he became so, so much an idealist philosopher. Don't forget that he was actually offered the Chair of Moral Philosophy at St Andrews in 1904, um, having get delivered the Gifford Lectures. It was at 13 lectures over two seasons, some 800 or so, seven or 800 pages. It was extraordinary, um, the, the, um, the, the series of discussions. But he was deeply influenced by German thinking. He loved Hegel. He saw Hegel and his philosophy running through everything, but he had, <laughs> had his own interpretation of Hegel. He loved German literature, Goethe. He supported Hume Brown every year for about 15 years. He'd go to Germany with Professor Hume Brown to walk in the footsteps of Goethe and sit on mountaintops at midnight where Goethe had sat and they together wrote the life of Goethe that uh, Hume Brown wrote it and Haldane finished it after, um, after Hume Brown's death. So Germany was incredibly important to Haldane and so as soon as he becomes Secretary of State for War he accepts the invitation of the Kaiser to go over to Germany for the Kaiser's parade of the, of the, uh, of the guards and that gives him the opportunity to go 
go and study the structure of the German war office. And he sees the value of having a general staff and how you can split administration from the more practical side of warfare. And so it, it, it's a constant drumbeat throughout Holday. What did he learn from Germany? And of course, the education system with Charlottenburg, um, the, the, with the extraordinary systems of, 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 of training, of technical training, of, of um, the, 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 the extension schools, um, there was the work <laughs> education, a lot of this is German. And Holden would constantly, um, in his lectures, in his talks, calling on the spirit of Germany to see that we must, and um, in business, we must uh, we must move forward, be much more scientific. And so, of course, he sets himself up, you know, for the moment when war is declared and, uh, and people are opposed to him preaching about the merits of Germany. And so that's understandable. Well, thanks for that. Anthony, some of the things that um, that he was proposing in this, this uh, report, um, very different from um, from what was there then, even from the kind of government we have now. I mean, for example, argued that cabinet should be 12 people at most, um, which has not um, endured as a principle, <laughs> and, um, or even, even, even existed as a principle. He, he didn't manage to get that one through and went into quite a debate about whether ministers were, should be without portfolio that is not constrained by departments. What do you think the vision um, that he set out in that report would have done to uh, British government. C Campbell, um, what do you think? Because it was such a radically different model rather than cabinet essentially being made up of uh, policy um, of the heads of the different departments that make up uh, government to have a more um, a more free uh, wheeling non-departmental and a much tighter group as happened during the Second World War and has happened with prime ministers inner cabinets, uh, which are not uh, heavy laden with departmental heads. Uh, what, what do you think uh, might have happened, Campbell? And why uh, was it that the coming of peace um, that is the answer to Bronman's question about why it didn't come into being? Well, th th this was um, the report onto the machinery of government published in 1918. He spent about a year with his committee inquiring into what the structure of government might most effectively be after the war. As we'd seen during the war, to have a war cabinet of, I think, five people had got the issues really focused. You couldn't operate with 26 people or so um, debating the, 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 with the speed of movement that was required. So he believed that um, it was just one of his many, many records recommendations was that the structure of the cabinet, as you say, Bronwyn, should be limited to ideally around 12 people. And he said, well, how could that be done? It would be done by function rather than beneficiaries. So instead of having um, ministers for the unemployed or for children or whatever it might be, you set the main functions down, health, education, mm -hmm. finance, you know, research and intelligence was the one mm -hmm. critical department you want to set up, foreign affairs, and mm -hmm. bring defence together instead of having an army and admiralty and eventually obviously a Royal Air Force, which he helped set up, get all of that into defence, employment, production, transport. So there was a discipline behind it. Now, to give practical effect to that in the context of obviously reporting to Parliament is rather difficult because if you've only got 12 or so people in the cabinet, yet you've got many sub, let's say, subsections of ministries that you would mm. need you'd have had to work out a way in which those ministers were really taking responsibility, but under an overall aegis of a cabinet focused on the major issues. And um, it, it, it just proved too difficult. Too many people wanted to be in the cabinet. They'd always been in the cabinet. <laughs> you can't keep down. So, um, so was that why the report didn't have more impact, didn't bring about more change in your view, that it was too difficult? Or was it the politics? Too revolutionary, too revolutionary. Um, in, in my, I'm a businessman. I wouldn't think of having 24 people around my boardroom table debating everything. You operate with executive committees. That's what one needs. Um, and that's what Haldane was proposing, that the, the cabinet should be the supreme executive committee and then it should be delegated. Um, uh, don't forget, that we come back onto the philosophical point. That, um, what was the driver through every 
everything that Haldane did. Haldane believed that any society is built from the bottom up and government is built from the bottom bottom up as well. I did you, Bronwyn, if you're living in your in London, in a particular part of London, you are part of you should you should be in charge of your home to the greatest extent possible without any interference. But you're also part of your of your of your neighbourhood, part of the borough you live in. You're part of England, and you're always giving up power from the bottom to a higher level. When you see that at that higher level things can be more efficiently done, so you go from England to the United Kingdom. Then, if you so wish it, you. Go to the European Union or the World Bank or um, the, uh, the, 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 the International Monetary Fund, you give up power, but you, Bronwyn, are every one of those people. You are the borough, you are England, you are the United Kingdom, you're the United Nations. And it's a terribly important. So when he looked at government, that this is built from the bottom up, but at the same time, you could get a level of representation that could aggregate better what is going on below. And that was what the cabinet got concept was, but he just thought there were too many people and with 24, 25, 26 people to make that effective. And one should address that. And he tried to address it, but it was impractical. Obviously, he wasn't in office until the Labour government came in and they couldn't possibly put that through in 1920. I'm going to come on to the politics in, in, in a second, but that's an important point. Anthony, what do you think? Dominic Cummings made a recent um, pitch that the cabinet should not be as big as it, as it is. What do you think if you cast a modern eye on it? For the argument that the cabinet should be smaller? Well, in effect, uh, the cabinet is smaller because cabinet government uh, only operates when the prime minister is weak and needs to um, draw on uh, the political strengths of the big beasts in cabinet. Mm -hmm. Prime ministers, almost all of them, would much sooner operate with an inner cabinet or a kitchen cabinet or a, a chumocracy, uh, Blair, Brown, uh, Cameron, May, Johnson of trusted advisors. Um, I think as always, there's much that is brilliant in, in what Dominic Cummings uh, says, uh, 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 but there's even more that's impractical about it because it, it, it ignores the political realities. Uh, the world doesn't exist in the heads, just in the heads of, of brilliant people, however clever they are, it has to be able to work uh, and convince people to make the changes. So, of course, there's a case. Cabinet, by the way, is also very heavily constrained in terms of the numbers by the physical, the limited physical space of, of that room at the end of the corridor uh, in Downing Street. Um, which, but, which, which Zoom is made, maybe made less, less relevant these days. Um, that's, but is, is that really the, the, the case uh, that we understand why cabinet government has failed and you've absolutely explained that. But what Haldane, I think, was trying to say is that, that, that he would look at something like that and say, look, you cannot have 23, 24 members of the cabinet sharing responsibility for all the decisions that are being taken. It is just too many people with fingers in too many pies. You need to have a more focused senior cadre who take overall responsibility then becomes totally acceptable that Anthony Seldon can be the minister of whatever it might be that as part of the overall ministry say of education but it would be just as important that you are the minister of say universities if that was the right thing within education and Sam Bronwyn was the minister for um, the sorry Absolutely. Well, we're, we're just holding there on, on what you're going to be appointing Bronwyn to, uh, which would be fascinating. Uh, and, and whatever it is, she would make it a lot better. We, we know uh, that. But, but um, back to the point, I would suggest that uh, de facto what uh, Haldane had in mind of a smaller cabinet not tied to running these large Whitehall departments is de facto what's happened, but not de jure, where we have a cabinet in the low 20s pretty much consistently over the last 100 years and a system of cabinet committees which work more or less effectively. But with that constant tendency, the Haldanian tendency of the prime ministers to want to be just with the people they trust who have that strategic clarity for the direction of, of their administration. Yes, but 
Einstein's time that it was those people that he trusted were the other cabinet members. The, the, the special advisor class didn't exist in those times. So that he'd be reinventing that and bring people in at ministerial level that you could actually work with and trust. Advised, of course, by, as he said, the Department of Intelligence and Research. So you'd have this central research department where all these bright ideas are developed and then disseminated so we've been talking essentially about um, at least a couple of the principles that um, Campbell at the end you suggest um, should be associated with, with Holbein and one of them, um, one of them balancing uh, idealism with realism, um, which perhaps Dominic Cummings uh, did not in your account just then, uh, Anthony, but um, also yes. trying to take decisions at the level closest to the people. Um, that those decisions are are affecting. Yeah. Um, what about the if the, if there's one principle? Um, this is kind of IFG quiz night. But if there's one principle that the the that Holden is associated with, it's it's uh, the idea of pursuing research, academic scientific research, um, separate from questions of um, of what government might use it for. And I wondered if you you could both explore that a bit because that that comes up in a very live way these days about whether uh, research and, and government funding of research, you know, thinking of coronavirus and so on, but should be should be influenced by uh, government's objectives or should be carried out in some some more separate, if you like, purer way. Either of you. And did you want to get first? Or the... uh, uh, Campbell. Where would I start? Again, it's back on to your point, Anthony, but anyway, was Holden overstating his importance? Am I overstating his importance? I don't believe for a second, I really am, to show enthusiasm, to try to get to the underlying truth, even if it sounds exaggerated. It's better to be truthful than to try to hold back. Um, when it comes to research and development, what's terribly interesting is the University Grants Committee, formed in 1904. Who formed it? Austin Chamberlain. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1904. Who does he get to chair the committee, the University Grants Committee? He turns to Haldane. Haldane's 47, 48 years old then. He's a lawyer, very, very clever lawyer, very interested in education, but he's a liberal. But Austin Chamberlain brings in a liberal to chair the University Grants Committee and to work out how the limited amount of money the government has got to support research in the universities should be allocated between the universities. And so it goes on from there. He um, that starts his interest in the, in, 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 in the University Grants Committee. When he becomes the uh, Lord Chancellor, working closely with the Lord President of the Council as a member of the Privy Council in 1915, the very first thing that happens after he's out of office is that they set up the Department for Scientific and Industrial Research within the Privy Council. I was just looking before I came north. And the, uh, yesterday, I'm after Scotland at the moment, and the, 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 taking advantage of the, of the reduction of lockdown. And then actually in um, Haldane's constituency in Haddington, as I sit here looking out of my window at the hotel across the Firth of Forth, where um, Churchill, you would know this, um, Anthony, Churchill, I remember when Haldane wanted to take the Admiralty and put a general staff into the Admiralty. Asquith had taken Archerfield about two miles down the coast from Grey Walls. I'm sitting at the moment. Moment. And he um, asked Holding to come over to talk over the structure of the Admiralty. He arrives there and the door is opened, not by Asquith or one of the staff, it's opened by Churchill. And Holding immediately knew the game was up and that Churchill would get the Admiralty rather than him get the Admiralty. So it was really good on, on um, his historic turf. Well, it isn't the moment, but that he, but in the year just before I left the South, I was reading the second report for 1916-17 of the Department for Scientific and Industrial Research, and it almost brings tears to your eyes to see the range of things they were getting involved with in doing oh. research and giving um, support. Uh, aniline dyes, obviously munitions, all kinds of arcane areas. Like you need oh. to have central thinking and um, thinking, thinking, thinking was always what Haldane believed in and support that by great technical research. Um, that was the way that he did things. Excuse me. Sorry. Anthony, just Anthony, I just I want to come to you on, on this that also that I mean, the, the period that Campbell was just talking about was obviously the part of the, the, the First World War. I mean, a, a period famous 
for the intellectual and, and technical innovation that went on there under all the pressures of war. Do you think, um, uh, when government obviously led an awful lot of that, and the, the military and scientific inventions that came out of the First World War were very uh, well known, a staggering rate of achievement in just those four years. Do you think that the same ideas that apply outside wartime? Well, that's um, uh, such an interesting question. And it was um, a after a hundred years uh, of relative peace, the First World War shook up every single facet uh, of the, the country and enormously accelerated political and social economic thinking and reform and scientific and technological uh, reform and reform uh, to government. Um, uh, I'm thinking uh, that that much didn't, um, uh, it, it might have been better had the reform carried on more into peacetime. There was an enormous battle with the Treasury and uh, the Foreign Office wanting to strangle this unwanted infant of the Cabinet Office uh, at birth, but it was the Cabinet Office that was providing much more rationality. The relationship between Haldane and the first Cabinet Secretary, Morris Hankey, is enormously interesting. Uh, and progressively, at the Foreign Office and the Treasury throughout the 20s and 30s, marginalised the Cabinet Office until the Second World War, where it came back in and was again thinking about and had the capacity to think about machinery of government. And again, it was Germanic thinking, not least through Churchill's scientific advisor, Lindemann, uh, later Lord Charwell, who was talking a lot about German education ideas, the Hochschule wanting to bring in German technical education, wanting to bring in much more rational structures into government and into education. Um, uh, and uh, again, uh, after the Second World War, uh, much of that um, originality of thought dissipated. Um, but I, I just wonder uh, if you've got time before questions. Uh, We're going to come on to questions soon, but just just let's sorry, go on. No, 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 do, 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 come back to you. No, 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 I'm saying, all I'm saying is we're going to come to the question soon. Do, do, no, no, I, I, well, I just wondered, Bro, yeah. before we do that, will we have time, perhaps not, just to explore a little bit about the inner Haldane? Um, and, and I know it interests you also. Um, and, and what was motivating him? Um, and and uh, what happened to his own uh, love life? He was loved by his officials and uh, and by many people. But, but was there an inner... Uh, emptiness uh, there. Close friend of Balfour, also uh, a, a bachelor and, and a philosopher. Um, what what happened uh, to him? Was he asexual? Uh, did it not matter to him? Uh, was he often lonely? Well, I, I, I found it a very warm book. Um, there's all these great achievements, and, and Campbell, you know, narrates them, and, and there's a fascinating detail on that. But it is fascinating on these personal relationships. I can't hold up the photographs now because it's not going to work on the screen. But the photographs are terrific. And these accounts, which Campbell's just about to give us, of, of his personal relationships, um, they're very moving. I mean, being loved by officials is, is a rare thing. By all your officials, it's a, very <laughs> rare, it's a rare thing, but it's not what most people would call a love life. <laughs> if you go through the letters that came into his sister Elizabeth, who in, in her own right was the most brilliant woman, a great um, public servant, um, you know, one of the initial um, uh, beneficiaries of the Companion of Honour. In 1917, they gave it to 18 people initially, limited to 60 in total. And four women were part of that initial 17. She was one of them. Um, that when people wrote to her after Haldane's death in 1928, it is just so tear-jerkingly sad and you get um, you know, say the, the, um, the, the heads of the ministries um, through to the doorman at the ministries writing letters saying how much they love this man. No, he had an enormous empathy. Is it easier to do what you're doing if you're celibate? I just, I, I sometimes wonder if that is almost the case. If you can, Haldane worked from the age of 16 onwards, 16 to 18 hours a day 
day, seven days a week. He never stopped working. He never went to house parties to shoot or to fish or to anything like that. He went there to advance the causes that he was involved with, to network. He was the most networked man in Britain, you know, from the King Edward VII to King George, obviously in due course, but through uh, everybody, scientists, politicians, um, educationalists, the church. Look at the visitor's book at Clone. It's constantly the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's, it's absolutely dazzling, but as, as Anthony's hinting, I mean, there was he had um, very intense relationships well, with two women, didn't he? And was rebuffed and had something like great. The great find of, of, of the of, of the book was that I was introduced to uh, the current Lord Asquith, or Oxford and Asquith, Raymond Asquith down at Mells, who inherited from his father. His father was in his 90s, and I think it was about 2010. And when he began to sort out all the papers and archive them at Mells, he found a paper bag. And in that paper bag were 50 odd letters from Haldane to Frances Horner, who was the great grandmother of, um, of Lord Asquith. With. Um, Frances Horner was the, the wife of a man called Sir Jack Horner, as I tell the story in my book. And thank you for mentioning the illustrations. It's heavily illustrated. There are 170 illustrations in the book over 100 pages to try and bring, bring him visually alive. And um, Haldane met Frances Horner shortly after the breakdown of his engagement. Haldane was engaged in 1890 to the sister of, uh, of a friend of his, Munro um, uh, uh, Ferguson. And that just after the engagement had been announced, she broke it off and gave no reason for it. Um, she died seven years later. Um, the whole day, um, it was deeply, deeply attached to her. But within um, two years of that, um, uh, of the, the breakup of the engagement, he met Lady, Lady Horner. Um, she was married um, to Jack Horner. Jack Horner, I think, predeceased Holden by about three years. It became the most important female relationship beyond his mother and his sister of Haldane's life. He opened up completely to her, wrote the most personal letters, attributing his ability to do all kinds of things to her. But there's no evidence whatsoever that there was any sexual side to the relationship. She was very philosophical in her own, that she was a philosopher in a minor way in her own right. And it was a wonderfully enabling relationship. In fact, the very fact that um, that Haldane took the Ministry of War and went into government is down to Lady Horney. Haldane and Asquith, and you'll remember this most particularly, um, Anthony, um, and Asquith and Gray at the Relugas Compact in, um, in the autumn of 1905 agreed they would not individually serve in government unless Haldane became Lord Chancellor, um, Gray, um, Foreign Secretary, and Asquith would speak for the party in the House of Commons as the Chancellor for the Exchequer, and um, Bannerman would go to the House of Lords. He was unwell, he hadn't got the energy to do the things that Haldane and Asquith and Gray believed he needed to do. Um, that eventually um, Asquith broke ranks, went into the government, Haldane Gray decided not to serve. Lady Horner arrives in London on the very day that it was all over. They'd said they're not going to serve. And she says, no, you, know, you owe this to the nation to serve. This goes beyond yourself. Go and change your mind. And they went off to have dinner and then rushed round uh, to Grosvenor Square, um, to Bannerman's home. Said they, and, and Haldane said, look, we've changed our minds and the government has announced the next day. Now, okay. Lady Horner's... Cam, Cam, oh, sorry, Campbell, I think we, we, I, I we, should, we, we should wrap that there as a tantalising uh, bit for people. Um, read the book. We're going to questions now. I just wanted, because I can see from the questions, some people do know very, a lot about him and some don't, but I wanted just to pick up, just before we do that, I'm going to read a short bit, um, which captures, it's in the words of Beatrice Webb, um, the social reformer um, Campbell was referring to at the beginning, and um, it, it captures the, the, uh, the physical um, and expansive nature of, of Holbein beautifully. Uh, she, she put it, plenitude, mental and physical, seemed to me his dominant feature, leading to a large intake and a like output. The big head on the bigger body, generous expenditure on the good things of life, not least among them choice edibles and the accompanying portions and potions of nicotine and alcohol, also of select quality, long hours of work, endless documents and books mastered and remembered, 
a multitude of interests and an ever-widening circle of friends and acquaintances and there's more but thank you for that which I, I it was one of the many descriptions there that I particularly enjoyed right let's plunge into the questions because there's lots of good ones and some of the debate is about whether or not he's forgotten um and um some people saying yes uh um Tom McCarthy from Dublin saying as a student of public administration in Trinity Col College Dublin there was only one name that regis registered with students and that was Haldane thank you for that um one I, I just want to pause on then, uh, Neil at Clone saying, I would suggest that one reason why his name became, if not forgotten, at least obscured, is the decline of the Liberals in the 1920s, which of course he contributed to. Anthony, do you have a view of that? Yes, I mean, he he hitched his carcass uh, to, to, to a dying, I mean, his body to a, to a dying carcass. Um, had he earlier moved over to Labour as he might have done, uh, he could have been a, a, a seminal figure uh, and a very trusted uh, a Labourite figure who would have given uh, MacDonald um, enormously uh, helpful advice. I don't know what Campbell thinks. There's another interpretation, and that which I think is, is closer to the interpretation that I would wish, maybe I'm gilding the lily. Haldane um, was actually, um, he wanted the Liberal Party to be the Labour Party. He was all for social reform. He wanted the Liberals to go much faster to embrace that and effectively head off the very emergence of the Labour Party itself. Don't forget the Labour Party was only represented for the first time in the 1905 Parliament, which was in 24 seats, I believe something like that. They only formed the Independent Labour Party in 1900. Haldane had wanted to take so much of what the Labour Party believed in and bring that in at the heart of liberalism, a socially responsible liberalism. And so, but he couldn't persuade his colleagues to move fast enough on that. And, but that was the new liberalism that Haldane believed in. And so eventually, why does he move over to Labour? It's not because he's attaching himself to any party. Haldane was ever attached to principle. He went over to Labour because he believed the Liberals no longer cared for the pursuit of education in the way the Labour Party did. And he went to serve them in that context. All right, brilliant, because that takes us on to a question uh, from James Connolly, who says, Holding was a liberal and liberal statesman for most of his life, yet he became Labour's first Lord Chancellor in 1924. Did he become a socialist or did he simply see Labour as the best vehicle for realising his educational ideas? It was Campbell. It was entirely that. Holday made it completely clear that it was through education that the nation was going to grow. Um, but at the same time, he saw so much that what the what the Socialist Party was doing was the way forward, that um, uh, that he had a long record in social improvement. And, and you know, one of the questions that uh, quite often comes up is the question of, um, of um, the, 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 the empire um, and liberal imperialism, that that was he a liberal imperialist and it's a derogatory term absolutely not in my belief he wanted to embrace all that could be done to make the empire a great organization to make it socially much more um, equal to um, to enhance growth in the empire through cooperation and he wrote the the biography of adam smith at the age of 29 they put adam smith back on the map for his generation so the division of labor was really important Haldane was ever a man of the people it, he endlessly traveled out and about um, talking to where anybody that listened about the most serious subjects. He would talk about Hegel to the miners here in Haddingtonshire, where I am at the moment. So that's still on the education theme, one from Mary Corker and greetings from Bristol. She says, what do our panelists think Haldane would have made of the marketized managerialist mass education tertiary system of the early 20th, 21st century? Anthony? I think he would have uh, disapproved of uh, the state becoming overly involved in, in government and in the direction of research and um, universities absolutely need to have that autonomy. Coming back to an earlier question, research is greater than the, the objectives of any 
one government or indeed of any one nation in the pursuit of, uh, of truth. Uh, and I think um, he would have wanted or maybe he should have wanted also uh, that, that essential autonomy and, and freedom of inquiry and freedom of organisation for universities to, to hold true. Absolutely, I, I agree totally. But it, you, education to hold in, you defined through, it was the whole of life's education. Yes, he had to concentrate his work on the university system, and, but he wrote a most brilliant paper in 1913 on the whole education system, how it stopped something like over 80% of all children left school at the age of 12 in 1913. It was appalling. Holden, don't forget, was brought up in Scotland, where many, many more, as a percentage of the people, went to the Scottish universities, the four great universities in Scotland much more over university than England. So I think that if he was to come back today, more than anything, he'd probably weep. And I speak from Scotland as I say this, at the state of education in Scotland today with this school's uh, curriculum for excellence and everything like that. You know, where has that led Scotland? Uh, the, that's, uh, you, you've just published at the Institute the Government, but you, but you rather pulled your punches on it, if I may say so. But I think the direction of travel, of, of, of uh, giving hope that somehow that this can be turned and it's a very very negative things we've seen over the last 10 years in Scotland education and don't forget Holden was rector of Edinburgh as well as Chancellor of St Andrews. We don't tend to pull our punches I have to say um, <laughs> looking at the money into the devolved governments in, in, in the past uh, 20 years and, and what's come out in the way of health and education there are many many um, factors we, we can debate that one off, off screen or through the the questions and things. Um, let me just bring in one from Sama Hassan. Um, and she says, thank you for this. I attended many classes at the Holdane Lecture Theatre at my university and I'm only learning about him for the first time today. I agree that he's not forgotten simply by the fact that presumably many university buildings are named after him around the UK. Is that, is that true? Yeah. A few rooms. There are one or two societies. Um, I, I think there's one at Nottingham, the Holding Society. Of course, there's the Holding Society of Socialist Lawyers. Um, that that's probably the, the the one national brand, if one can put it. But there's relatively little, relatively little. Um, one would love to see um, Holding's name much more prominent. Mm. Holding scholars and. Maybe the book Brunwyn will inspire uh, that and, and to bring into train a national reappraisal, if that's not being too fancy, uh, of the importance not just of Haldane the man or, or the person, but the ideas and the importance of, of putting humane ideas above uh, particular political parties and institutions. And thinking, Anthony, yes, holistically. And Holden was always, as you said earlier, Bronwyn, always back to first principles, but seeing it whole. You see it in a philosophical context as well as a political. Um, that, that, and that tends to lead you to better decisions. If I could just mention one thing, if I just to go beyond the UK, because I, this is really important about levels in society. Um, a lot of people, by the time Haldane died, said he'd saved the state, he'd saved Britain you know, by the speed at which the British Expeditionary Force went into uh, into the field of battle and the, the, the German uh, troops were stopped outside the gates of Paris. I posit in my book, as you've seen, that Haldane saved Canada. Now, how can I possibly say Haldane saved Canada? It's because when he was the uh, Lord Chancellor, he became the president of the Judicial Appeals Committee of the Privy Council, the Supreme Court of the Empire. All the, um, any questions of constitutional right came to that court. Yeah. Canada was set up in 1867 to be a very centralist organisation and um, to be a country where the dominion under John Macdonald should have superpowers over the provinces. 
Haldane completely disagreed with that, and he did a lot of constitutional law, both as a practicing barrister, but when he got his keys on the, into the safe, when he became the president of the Judicial Appeals Council himself, he began reversing the trend of the law and gave much, much more power to the provinces in the interpretation of the judgments whenever he could, and they, 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 whenever it was possible, he did that. Um, in, in, in thinking Ken, Ken Campbell, I'm, I'm just I just concerned. I want to get in quite a few of the questions. Yes, yes. They're, they're great. No, 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 no. Just, it's, just it's 10, fascinating. 15 seconds, just on in 1995, Quebec voted by just 1% to stay in Canada, despite giving all these extra powers. That's because he'd given more power to the people. If he'd given any less, Quebec mm. would have departed. That's the key, I think, to dealing with Scotland and the regions of the UK, devolving power down. It shouldn't have been taken away, certain things. That you well, thank, thank you very much for uh, taking us to that point, which was very much on my mind and is on some of the questioners' minds about whether he'd have an answer to the, the strains on the union at the moment. But an interesting one from Tony, though, um, who says, look, while many of the institutions that Holden was responsible for still exist today, how much of the thinking and the principles that he introduced still stand out in how Britain works today? Anthony. Well, I'm going, you're much more interesting, Campbell. I and I was going to ask you, building on that question, who today, or who in the whole post-war period, have been the Haldanes? I mean, Roy Jenkins ha ha has some elements of Haldane, but not perfectly. Well, I I look for statesmanship all the time, and I find it very, very rarely. Um, that there are elements you see of Haldane. I think that um, I, I don't know how acceptable the name is, but. Keith Joseph as a thinker was mm. behind the scenes. You could apply that to, to Haldane to a certain extent. That Keith Joseph wasn't looking to be the front man. He wanted to have the ideas. So in that respect, you could say that uh, there the, 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 the may be some analogy to be made. But you see Haldane in so many different aspects. Mm. I can't think of a statesman that um, did had the breadth and the all these different qualities and to be judicial was and to be a constitutional lawyer um, as well as being a politician that's what you need for say i think for scotland today work mm. out what is the form of constitution that would make people in scotland really want to be part of a great united kingdom but not feel they're being interfered with for things that are much more done at the scottish level well Der derry irvin very quickly uh, was a lawyer, also uh, a man, and more of an Eminence Grise Lord Chancellor, obviously, but the man behind all those constitutional reforms, and with a very clear, rational uh, vision about uh, scientific organisation and improvement. Yeah. But, but an incomplete analogy. And uh, the question, um, and you, you've pivoted it very interestingly into into what figures you know might resemble him in their in, in their in their breadth. The question was also about what ideas persist. Um, of Haldanes, and perhaps that's best answered by the, the, the principles that we have been talking about, 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 about realism and, and, and idealism, about the use of evidence, about um, making decisions, as, as you're arguing, Campbell, you know, in a way that uh, represents people at, the, at their level. Um, and, you know, would, would, you say, would you say that, I mean, the, the intellectual Haldanes yes, also, I think a question you put earlier, which I don't be really properly addressed, um, the focus of research, is it applied or is it pure research? A lot of, there's a thing called the Haldane principle, which was never something expounded yeah. by Haldane, but it was yeah. this myth that's has, going to... Has come somehow attached to him, even though he didn't set it out. First, first put the name of the Haldane Principle. And the Haldane Principle purports to be that it should be the pursuit of pure science rather than applied science, which is the important thing. That isn't, I believe, what Haldane was actually trying to promote. What he was trying to promote was not government interference at the core of scientific development. I allow the scientists to work out where the flows should be rather than have too much government direction as to what it might be. But obviously, uh, that Haldane passionately 
passionately believed in applied science and the need to make our businesses and we have talked to Anne dyes is a very good example or armaments even you had to have great technical capabilities so the application of science as well as the um just the broader principles was very important to him in his research development I'm going to squeeze in one more question that was as fantastic questions and thank you everyone for sending them on, on his philosophy, on his view of Marx, his view, what his view would have been of the European Union, all kinds of things which we can't, I'm sorry, get into. I just one comment from Alan Bailey saying it may be of interest that William Armstrong in the run up to Fulton, Fulton report had the Holden report much in mind. He asked me as his private secretary to write a report on it. So um, interesting. Right, so the last question in the great tradition of asking complicated questions about Ireland where you have one minute to answer. And from Roderick Crawford, Haldane supported the exclusion of Ulster from Home Rule. What was his argument for this? To what extent was it based on practical considerations and to what extent political principles? Campbell. It's back to the level in society which you're taking decisions. Haldane was absolutely a believer in Home Rule, but it was Home Rule, don't forget, for the whole of Ireland in the context of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And then what eventually emerged was um, something which was maybe a, a compromise. It was not the way that Haldane would have wanted it to be, the, 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 the final division of Ireland in 19... 20, right, we are going to have to wrap it up there. Um, there's many people with quite detailed questions and if you'd like Campbell to answer, which I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to presume that he actually would be happy to do. Uh, interesting one from Paul Barnett on uh, collaboration with Mary Parker Follett, uh, one from Kay Andrews on uh, German influence and his creation of the University Grants Commission. They're great questions. Um, if, if you'd like Campbell to uh, muse on them, perhaps uh, send us contact details for you. But with that, I'm going to have to thank uh, Campbell, Anthony, uh, and all of you for sending great questions. And thank you very much indeed for joining us. And thank you, Roman, very much.